I'm going to take your stand, Victor. That's okay. How's it going, Erwin? Well, today we are going to be finishing our series on uh, the story of Moses and taking a look at how God uses Moses' story to reveal to us his glory, to reveal different things about himself to us. We all know Moses is an admiral figure in the Bible. There's no question about that. He's a great example to us of many different things. But at the end of the day, Moses is just a person. Right? He has flaws. And the only reason we know about him at all is because God chose to use him. And so what we've been looking at is just how God uses this story to give glory to himself, because God is the, the hero, if you will, of the story of the Exodus and Moses. So in the first week, we looked at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. And there we saw how God is a promise keeper. Right, he keeps his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Next week, we looked at the plagues and the Red Sea in Exodus 7 through 14, and we saw a lot about God's power, how his power is above all things, his power is unmatched. And last week, we looked at what happens at Mount Sinai, covering Exodus 19 to 33, and there we learned how God is irreplaceable, and that only he belongs in the center of our lives as we worship him, and that his desire is to be in our midst he wants to be in our presence. He wants us in his presence, which is an incredible thing to think about, right? That this amazing, awesome, transcendent God wants to be with us. Now, these aren't the only things that these passages are about. Just a note. I mean, there's a lot of other things we could have talked about, but, but those are the things we focused on. Now, today, to wrap up the story of Moses and to close the series, we're going to take a look at the very end of Exodus. We're going to take a quick dip into Leviticus, and we're going to zoom in on an incident in Numbers. And what we're going to be focused on today is God's holiness, God's holiness. So where we left off on the story, God and the Israelites have entered into this covenant relationship at Mount Sinai. The deal is God will bless Israel by making them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Israel's part of the idea uh, of the deal is to obey, to properly worship God, to live with him at the center of their lives. And we see the 10 commandments and all these commandments that God gives to define what that actually means. And then we see that Israel immediately throws that out the window by worshiping the golden calf. They try to replace the irreplaceable God. God is rightfully angry at this, wants to destroy Israel, but Moses intercedes and God in a great showing of mercy spares them. And the covenant is renewed. And so in Exodus chapter 36 and 40, we see the tabernacle being built and it's built exactly to the specifications that God gives in, in great detail. God divinely enables the Israelites to build this. And so to end the book of Exodus is the very last passage in chapter 40. We see this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And that's how the book of Exodus ends. Now, something to point out here, Moses cannot enter the tent. Right? Verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent. Why? That's the question. Why is he not able to enter the tent? He's been talking to God. He's been interceding with the people. His face has been shining because he's been talking to God face to face as one would a friend, the Bible says. So why can't he go in the tent? Well, 
because God is holy. And the tabernacle is a holy place. Now, what do we mean when we say God is holy? A definition that we're going to use today is from uh, this theologian named Wayne Grudem. And, and what it says, it's going to be on the slide here. God's holiness means two things. One is that he is separated from sin. And two, he is devoted to seeking his own honor. One, he is separated from sin. He is perfect in all that he does. God is morally pure, absolutely pure, right? There's not even a drop of evil or wickedness in God. He doesn't even desire to do anything wicked. Psalm 5.4 tells us, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So he's separated from sin. And the second part of it is he is devoted to seeking his own honor, his own glory, right? Everything God does is for his own glory. He's far above anything. He created every single thing. And so he has that right. It's the only thing that makes sense. And his purpose is that all may know that. And we've seen that many times throughout Exodus, right? Everything that God is doing is so everyone would know his name and know that he is God and God alone. Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. Lord, there is Yahweh, again, as we've been saying. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 42, 8. Now, Last week, when we looked at the covenant relationship, we saw the, the benefits that God offers to the people. Right? There are three things, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. A holy nation. That's from Exodus 19, 4 through 6. So God's desire for Israel is that they, too, would be holy. That they, too, would be separate from sin, totally separated from sin, totally obedient to God. That was the purpose of the Ten Commandments and all the law. And that their purpose would be totally devoted to his honor and his honor alone and how they lived their lives, that they would live for him, that they would worship him. The Hebrew word we translate as holy, kadesh, means apartness or set apart. And these are the things that set God apart from everything else. He's morally pure, totally separated from sin, and he's totally devoted to his own honor. And the idea is that Israel do that as well. And so for Moses and Israel to be in the presence of this holy God, their sin, because they have sin, they're imperfect as we know, their sin must be dealt with in some way. And so Moses cannot enter the tent while this sin is unaddressed. And so the next book of the Bible is Leviticus, third book of the Bible. And Leviticus is all about how the people are to address their sin and impurity through various rituals and sacrifices. It's a tough book to read. If any of you have ever tried, you know this, um, especially for us today. In our, in our modern culture and understanding. Um, it's difficult to read. There's a lot of details about the various offerings and how they would be performed, details on the sacrifices to atone for the sin, rules about what animals to eat, all, all these different things. But the main idea is that the holy God wants to be present in the midst of the people. Right? He wants to dwell among them, as we saw last week with the tabernacle. And so the people need a way to properly address their impurity, their sin, because holiness is separated from sin. And we see again and again in Leviticus the call for Israel to be holy, to be separated from sin, to only devoted to the honor of God. Right? They're about to enter the promised land, which is full of people who, who are not doing this, who are worshiping pagan gods and doing all these different things. But Israel is to be set apart. They are to be different because they worship the true God. And so there's quite a few verses in Leviticus that are going to be up here where God says, be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 11:45. for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy 
Why? For I am holy. Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people in Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And 20.26, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So again and again, we see this idea repeated that God's intention, God's purpose is that Israel be holy as well. And that's the point of all these rituals and sacrifices that we see Uh, that seems so maybe strange to us in Leviticus. It is to remind Israel of their need to be morally pure before God, to be holy, separated from sin, devoted to his honor and all things. And then we get to Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, which starts with a census of the nation of Israel. That's why it's called Numbers. And then the people set off from Mount Sinai to go to the promised land. And it's it's a mess. A lot of it. It just goes very, very poorly. The people complain. They start to rebel against Moses. They start to long again for their time back in Egypt. They're getting tired of eating manna, this miraculous bread that God has provided for them. They miss cucumbers and onions and garlic and all the different variety of food they had in Egypt. So Aaron and Miriam challenge Moses' authority. They get near the promised land. A lot of you probably remember this story. They send spies in and the spies say, wow, there's a lot of great food there. Like it's bountiful, but there's also strong armies and huge fortified cities. So they're afraid. They don't want to go. So God punishes them by not allowing them to enter the promised land. He will let the next generation go in. He says that God is a promise keeper, as we've been repeating over and over again. But he disciplines the the Mount Sinai generation by not allowing them to enter. Then after that, there's even more rebellion from a guy named Korah, a group of 250 guys. It's just a mess. That's like the tagline for numbers. Just a mess. Israel is just making all these dumb choices and just not believing in God and not trusting in God's chosen servant, Moses. But through all of this, we see Moses staying solid. Moses doesn't waver. He's leading the people faithfully and he is trusting in the Lord. He is devoted to the Lord's glory as far as we can tell from the text. And God again and again in the midst of all these rebellions and challenges to Moses's leadership, God clearly supports Moses, again and again to the Israelites, God says, this is the person I have chosen to lead you. We're going to take a look at a couple of examples just to show how, how the book is setting up Moses. When Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses in Numbers 12, 6 through 9, we see this happen. And he said, this is God speaking to Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So very clearly, right? God is supporting Moses. He's telling Aaron and Miriam, this is the person I have chosen. Follow him. Listen to him. Um, A little later, we see a rebellion from um, this guy named Korah, and he brings 250 men against Moses, and God, uh, God opens up the ground beneath them and consumes them for this, for this sin, for this rebellion. We see this in Numbers 16, uh, 28 to 32. And Moses said, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by um, the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. 
with their households and all the people who belong to Korah and all their goods. So very, very clearly, right, God is showing, I support Moses. This is my faithful chosen servant. We see in the next chapter, chapter 17, God tells all the tribes of Israel to take a staff and put it in the tabernacle. And God is going to make one sprout. And that's the the person that he is choosing and showing, hey, this is the person who I'm using to lead. And so we see this in Numbers 17. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossom and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel and they looked and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. So time and time again in the book of Numbers, we see God showing his approval of Moses and Aaron too at some points, like here, that Moses is a faithful follower of the Lord. He is for God's glory. In Numbers 12, 3, we get the verse that Moses is the meekest person on earth. There's just incredible statements about Moses and his his character and, and what he's doing. The account of Numbers is painting Moses as this great guy, a great leader, great character, walking faithfully with God, despite all the opposition that he faces. And there's quite a bit in Numbers, and even before Numbers, quite a bit. All the complaining, all the grumbling, he does not waver. And then we get to Numbers chapter 20, and we see this starting in verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. So here we go again, right? And the people quarreled with, quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And then it goes on a little more through verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So the people start complaining because they're thirsty again. They start longing for Egypt again, and they want to die again. This is really nothing new. We've seen this all before, even all the way back to after the Red Sea. They were doing things like this. And Moses and Aaron do what they've done before. They go before the Lord. They petition before the Lord, interceding for the people, because they know that God is the provider. God is the one who can help in this situation. And God tells them to uh, speak to this rock, and it's going to bring forth water. And he tells them to bring the staff, the very staff that just budded, right? So that will show clearly that God is the one behind this miracle. God is the one delivering them. Now, a similar thing happened in uh, Exodus 17 as well. They're thirsty. It's the same narrative beats are hit. They're thirsty. They start to complain, long for Egypt. Moses asks the Lord for deliverance, and God tells him to strike a rock and water pours out, and they're miraculously watered in the desert. The only big difference here is that God tells Moses to speak to the rock this time, but the idea is the same. This is an opportunity for God to be glorified in how he delivers Israel, miraculously delivers the people from their thirst. And in Numbers uh, 20, verse 10, we see what happens. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? 
And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock twice. Water comes out. Again, God is a a promise keeper. He provides, as is his nature. But God punishes Moses and Aaron by not allowing them to go into the promised land. After all the good that Moses has done, right? He didn't worship the golden calf. He didn't tremble in fear at the doorstep of the land. He never rebelled. He gets the same result as the people who did all of that. He cannot go into the promised land and will die wandering in the desert with them. Now the question of the passage is, how did God show himself holy here? And through them he showed himself holy. Verse 13 is is an interesting verse, right? How did he do that? Well, let's review the definition of God's holiness. It is one, separated from sin, right? Morally pure, he's perfect in all he does. And two, he is devoted to seeking his own honor in everything that he does. It is all for his glory. Now Moses goes against both of those here, right? Moses sins. He directly disobeys the command from God. Instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it twice, seemingly in anger and frustration at the people for their consistent grumbling. But he doesn't do what God says him. And there's an emphasis. So many times in the text before this, it says Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded, but not this time because he didn't do that. And second, Moses is not devoted to the glory of God here. He says, shall we bring water out of this rock for you? Credit goes to Moses and Aaron, not to God. And so how does God show himself holy here? Well, he doesn't let Moses get away with that. That was sin. There are consequences for Moses' sin and, and rebellion. Even for a man as great and faithful as Moses, the meekest man who ever lived, as the Bible says, even he falls short, even he is not holy. And there are consequences for that. You know, God, who is fully separated from sin and fully for his honor, cannot overlook this. You see, I think we look at all the great things that Moses did, his long, long track record, a very, very long track record of faithfulness, how so many times in Exodus and Numbers, we see him faithfully following God, even in the midst of great opposition. And we see God again and again acknowledging that. And we see that over and over again. So that when we get something like this, it seems very sudden and severe. What happened? Sure, Moses disobeyed, but what about all the good he had done before? Remember, holiness is totally separated from sin, completely separated altogether. One sin negates it. One instance of seeking our own honor and glory above God negates it. All sin is falling short, and all sin is less than what God desires for us. God is holy, and we are called to be holy too. You know, I think our our problem is that we have a relative view of sin, We have a relative view of sin. We tend to think that some sins maybe just aren't as bad or some of them aren't even sins at all. And we all, over time, develop our own definition of this, I think, from our experiences and our um, various hardenings of our heart and things like that, right? Murder, I think we all probably agree that that murder is bad, very clearly sin. But gossip, 
which Romans 129 calls wicked, evil, and depraved. Some, to some of us, gossip really isn't that bad, right? Adultery, bad, we all agree on that. That lustful thinking, not other people do it. Maybe it's not that bad. And, and you can see the problem. We water down sin. We water it down. We view it from an earthly lens instead of how God, who is holy, totally separated from sin, always for his own honor, views it. We harden our hearts. And to God, who is holy, all sin is wicked. No matter how small it may seem to us, all sin is wicked. All sin is unacceptable, it's destructive, and for all, the wages is, is death. That's what Romans 3.23 tells us. There are consequences for all sin. And that's what we see in Moses' life. This amazing man of faith, amazing man of faith, who spoke to God face to face as a man would a friend, who faithfully leads Israel through all these challenges and, and, and obeys God so many times. At the end of the day, Moses remains just a man. He's just a person, just like you and me. Not even he is immune. He sins, he fails, he breaks the covenant. And so God shows us his holiness through Moses because God is morally perfect. He is separated from sin. Never has he done anything wrong. There is no desire to do wickedness in him. And he's always devoted to his own honor. He never does anything less. So the question is, what does that mean for us? What do we do with that? God has said, be holy as I am holy. He repeated it many times in Leviticus. We see that in the New Testament as well. In 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, the commandment is repeated to us. We are to be holy as God is holy. But I'm not even close to Moses in faithfulness. I'm not the meekest man who ever lived. And I think if you're telling yourself the truth, neither are you. Um, how can we stand before right, such a God who demands this moral standard from us, a standard that we can never maintain, no matter how hard we try, we will always fail. We will always fall short. That's one of the big questions of the Old Testament. Because right, again, we see over and over and over this nation of Israel, the covenant people of God, who are supposed to be this treasured possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation, they just blow it again and again and again. They just cannot keep the law that, that God laid out at, at Mount Sinai. They just keep on sinning. They're not separated from sin, quite the opposite. Even with the constant reminders of the sacrifices and the rituals that God is holy, you are to be holy too, they just can't seem to obey. Well, in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 15, we get some hope. Deuteronomy is, is Moses' last kind of message to Israel before he, he dies in the wilderness. And in verse 15, he gives this prophecy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So he gives this prophecy that another prophet is coming. And uh, right after this, in, in the next verses, God confirms that prophecy. And in the New Testament, we get the revelation that this prophet that Moses is talking about is Jesus. Jesus is the prophet to whom they should listen. In John, for example, in John 1.21, the people ask John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Capital P, are you the prophet? And he says, no, but the prophet is coming. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He is the prophet. In Acts 3, at Pentecost, when Peter gives his message, filled with the Holy Spirit, for the first time, he references the prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18 in reference to Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned, he does the same thing. And this is the final way, the final way that God uses Moses' story to glorify himself. The exclamation point, if you will. Moses points us to Jesus. 
the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus, as Hebrews 1.3 says. Moses' life reveals to us our need for Jesus. The answer to God's charge, be holy as I am holy, is Jesus. Uh, Moses is what we would call a type of Christ. Typology in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, is, is this symbolism that God has divinely ordained in the different stories and the different historical events and the people in order to represent Jesus to us, almost a foreshadow, show us a little bit of what Jesus is going to be like. So God divinely ordained Moses' story to point us to Jesus, to show us Jesus. We've seen this all along in the series, right? In the Passover, Israel sacrifices the lamb such that their firstborns would not be harmed by the 10th plague. The lamb dies in their place. And so in the New Testament, Jesus is called our Passover lamb. And he died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. Moses frees the people from their bondage in Egypt. Jesus frees us from our bondage to sin. Moses intercedes for the people at Mount Sinai. Jesus intercedes with us, for us, before God the Father. Moses brings the law and the sacrificial system in Leviticus or sacrifices of animals. Uh, through that, Israel's sin could be atoned for. And we see in Jesus the ultimate sacrifice. Right? He atoned for our sin once and for all. Through him, our sin is forgiven fully and forever. And there's many, many more details and small little things where Moses' life is pointing us to Jesus. The only way that we can stand before this holy God, totally separated from sin, totally devoted to his own honor, is through the sacrifice and blood of Jesus. That's the only way for us to enter the, the tabernacle, so to speak, to enter into the holy place, to be in the presence of the holy God. It's not through our efforts or anything that we could do. It's not by trying hard enough or being a good enough person. Why? Holy. God is holy. Totally and forever separated from sin. Totally devoted to his own honor. And none of us can say we've been that. We've already negated it. And we've already failed. We've already fallen short. But we can enter his presence because of the grace of God shown to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus lived a life totally separated from sin. Didn't he? Jesus lived a life that was totally devoted to the honor of God the Father, and Jesus died in our place once and for all, the perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God that we all deserve for breaking his commandment, for, for not being holy. And so the application for us today is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. This is referring to the curtain in the tabernacle that blocked off the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was. It's open to us now. It's open to us now because of Jesus. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day when Jesus returns, the day drawing near. So in light of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, in light of the holiness of God and how Jesus made a way for us through his blood, 
there are three things, three applications. One, draw near to Jesus. And we saw that in the previous slide, draw near to him because he gives grace, he forgives, he has mercy on us. He wants to transform us and renew our hearts so that we can follow God from the heart, walk in obedience and worship him properly like we talked about last week. So don't neglect being in his presence like we talked about last week. You know, spend time in the word, praying to him, all these different things. Draw near to Jesus. That's application one. Application two is continue on in faith. Persevere. God is a promise keeper. We can trust him. We can trust that there is forgiveness in Christ. We can trust that what he said is going to be true. We can persevere. And third, we encourage each other. Encourage each other as we're doing this. To what? To love and good works to obedience to Christ, to pursue holiness together. God wants us to be holy as he is holy. And together in a community, we can encourage each other to do that because we all need encouragement and help. And we will all fail and we all need to to go back before God and, and seek his mercy again. But in view of his holiness and his His love for us, he, he provides that for us. Moses was just a person. You and I, we're just people, right? We're just people. But we serve an amazing, transcendent, loving, personal, all-powerful God. And this, this series only scratches the surface of what he's like and his depth, um, his depth of love for us and, and just his character. So to close, I want to leave us with what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 3, 24. Oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do, do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let's pray. Um, God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are holy, that there is no shade of evil desire to do wickedness in you, that you are for yourself. God, you know that we, we cannot stand up to that by ourselves on our own effort. Um, you know that very clearly. So I thank you, Father, that you have provided a way through Jesus. Thank you, God, that, that through his blood and his sacrifice, our sin can be atoned for, and we can live in your presence. We could be forgiven, and that you are working in our hearts to make us more like him. And that one day, when, when Jesus returns and we're taken to be with you, um, we'll be separated from sin forever, and forever and ever be able to glorify you in perfect fellowship, perfectly in your presence. So thank you, God, for, for who you are. I pray that more and more you would reveal that to us. More and more we would see what you're like and more and more we would become like you. So thank you so much that you're holy, Lord, and that you love us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.